But we, we are relentless with how we want the phone to be better. Like, we, also, we want all our music, all our music on the phone. You, you, you want all your music on the phone. No, I'm sorry, I, I, I misspoke. We want all the music. <laughs> Every song ever on our phone now. Okay, but like, what are you willing to pay for that? <laughs> pay for it? Nothing! Nothing! Nothing. My offer is this. Nothing. One thousand rings. One thousand rings. One thousand rings. Oh my goodness! Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Wow, we are back. It has been uh, a long time since we've done this, and uh, I don't know where the time went, to tell you the truth. Um, I've been busy, but um, I mean, not as busy as I would normally be this time of year, but I'm too busy to do the podcast. So um, anyway, let's uh, let's let's get the, 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 you know, stuff out of the way. Thank you for listening. Okay. Uh uh, please rate the show five stars, although that disappeared on Spotify for a minute, but I think it's back. Um, most of my listeners are coming from Apple Podcasts lately, so that's weird. Um, and we've got uh, people all over the world. There's like, uh, you know, new countries being added all the time, people listening. Um, I guess. I guess they're listening. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, uh yeah, five star rating. I appreciate it. Share the thing, you know. Get on, get on the uh, former pr- the artist formerly known as Twitter. Uh, get on there and uh, you know tweet out the link to it whenever I whenever you see it up, you know, on the on the thing. If you follow me on X, whatever they call it now, or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, whatever it is you, however you see me on social media, if you could just echo that magnify it whatever um that'll be good uh top 1000 radio.blogspot.com is still our headquarters uh it's kind of dusty in there i need to get randy jenner in there to tidy up the place but um but there's you know there's still useful info there and um that's pretty much it i mean i've been uh i've been working commuting i think it's that commute that that's where it always comes down to but i have been trying to do better in terms of uh my health and i I, that means i've been walking a lot more and you know trying to get those ten thousand steps in uh everyone all the experts say that that's you know that's a good baseline for your fitness um and then uh i've been lifting i actually have been getting up early in the mornings and uh going out and, and hitting the squat rack and um, starting to, you know, starting to get into the swing of that. And then, um, you know, just eating, you know, eating right, trying to keep my calories down, trying to, you know, trying to get, and I'm down about, I think I'm down about 15 pounds. And um, so, which is good. I think I'm going to keep this up until the first week in November, then I'll, I'll go into maintenance and then I'll restart it again in January. You know, they, they say you should, you should never go more than 12 weeks in calorie restriction. So I'm going to, 
I'm going to take them up on that and then uh, just, you know, try to try to slow roll this thing instead of doing it real fast like I did last time. See if I can't make it, you know, make it work better this time. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Let's get to our recommends. And I have a ton of them uh, backlogged, so I'm only going to get to a few of them today. The first one is a big recommend, uh, Tetris the Movie on Apple TV. And I, I want to say it's somewhere else, but I don't know where. But it's based on the true story of how the video game, uh, which is a portmanteau of the Greek word for and the word tennis, which was the uh, video game designer's favorite sport, uh, how it made it out of the Soviet Union in, into Gamer Hall of Fame. Even yours truly. Uh, went through a rather intense Tetris puzzles phase in the late 90s. As a movie, it's well-paced, squeezes every ounce of drama out of the actual events. I don't know if the filmmakers meant to do it, but they did a great job of showing how even as evil and dumb as communism could be, and it was. I've been, I've been reading uh, Paul Kangor's De The Devil and Karl Marx. Woo! Yeesh! But anyway... Um, it still wasn't as repulsive as global crony capitalism, at least not economically. <laughs> uh, there are two main heroes in the story, Alexei Pajitinov, uh, the inventor of the game, and Hank Rogers, the software salesman who secured the rights for the game on behalf of Nintendo. A lesser hero is none other than Mikhail Gorbachev, old Gorby himself, the final block in the Soviet game of world domination. Uh, the American press has been lionizing Gorby since 1985, crediting him for finally ending the Cold War. And while I still believe Ronald Reagan demonstrably deserves more credit for the same, I have softened a bit and can cheer for the old Russian Elmer Fudd in this movie because it's easily believable that a communist had more heart than Robert Maxwell, the CEO of the Daily Mirror, and his grabbler of a son, Kevin, the CEO of Mirrorsoft Games. It's a very entertaining movie, but be warned, if you ever had a Tetris addiction, the movie is almost certain to cause a relapse. Uh, another, um, well, this is a more of a tepid recommend, uh, Wild in the Country, it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, on the word of TCBcast, which is an excellent Elvis fandom podcast, uh, I gave this one a try because they said it was different. It wasn't your normal Elvis movie. Uh, they had been right about the trouble with girls, so I gave this one a shot. Uh, it's definitely not your typical Elvis formula movie. Elvis plays a troubled young man on probation for almost killing his own brother in a fight uh, that his no-good brother, played convincingly by bodyguard Red West, started. Glenn, Elvis's character, has to meet with a psychiatrist once a week, and of course she's young and attractive. He also has to go live with his mother's cousin, who he calls Uncle Roth, and of course he has a daughter who's also even younger and more attractive, and wild too. Then there's Glenn's girlfriend, whose father doesn't approve of Glenn. So basically, it's a love rectangle. I guess they felt a triangle was too easy for Elvis. Anyway, it's a decent movie, much better than most of his films, but still not on the same level as Jailhouse Rock, King Creole, or Clambake. Um, this one's an even more tepid recommend. This is probably more on the, uh, not quite recommend, uh, RKO 281. It's on HBO Max or now it's just Max. Uh, it's the story of how Orson Welles made Citizen Kane. It stars Liv Schreiber, the narrator of Hard Knocks, who, uh, I, I guess I have to, um, break in here and, uh, um, 
you know, remind anyone who doesn't already know that the ayahuasca air uh, air raid is uh, is over. Uh, uh, the star of Hard Knocks this year was Aaron Rodgers, and he lasted all of three plays. I think he ended up throwing the ball maybe twice, and he got hit, or he. I don't even know if it was a hit. Well, he 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 fell and he ruptured his uh I believe his ACL um and he's out. He's out for the season and he might that may be it for his career. So all that build up, you know, for the Jets and and uh you know, are the Jets going to finally, you know, make a Super Bowl run again? Um that's a big negatory ghost rider because uh, Zach Wilson came in and, and the team rallied and they actually did win the game. They beat a good Buffalo team, and uh, but then they faced the, uh, the Dallas Cowboys and, and got crushed. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Anyway, back to, uh, back to the, the RKO 281. Um, so Liv Shriver portrays Orson Welles. John Malkovich is Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter. James Cromwell, from Babe, as William Randolph Hearst. And Melanie Griffith as Marion da- Davies, a movie star and Hearst's mistress. It's a TV movie that originally aired on HBO if you're interested in the movie Citizen Kane but don't want to invest an entire day to watch it. Uh, this ought to suffice. I still can't understand why it's considered the greatest American movie of all time. Yeah, innovations. Uh, you know, uh, Jackass the movie had innovations. <laughs> uh, Birth of a Nation had innovations. Anyway, you don't see critics falling all over themselves to give Johnny Knoxville an Oscar, do you? Um, this is a non-recommend unless you're a huge... John Belushi fan, Continental Divide, it's on Prime. I remember uh, hearing about it when it came out, but it looked... Uh, anyway, let me let me get into this. John Belushi, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan, the guy who wrote Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can't lose, right? They team up for a rom-com, half set in Chicago and the other half set in Wyoming, in the Rockies. Uh, Belushi plays a reporter whose hard-hitting articles about corruption gets him in trouble, so his editor sends him to do a piece on a zoologist specializing in bald eagles. It's kind of a reverse crocodile Dundee, as in this case the female protagonist, played by Blair Brown, is the real outdoor expert, saving Belushi's character on numerous occasions. There are some laughs in the movie, but it's not what you expect from the people making it. Um, just barely misses my recommend, I'd say. Um, and then uh, Angel and the Bad Man, I'm going to give that a big recommend. One of John Wayne's best early movies where he has to struggle with a life of peace with a woman he loves versus the life he was born to as a gunslinger. Probably his best acting job until he does uh, True Grit. Actually, I mean, obviously The Searchers is before, I think The Searchers, yeah, The Searchers is before True Grit. Um um, so he, you know, he does a really, but he, he, he does a, he does some really like kind of subtle things in, in Angel and the Bad Man that, that kind of impressed me. So, all right, let's go on into our song notes and see what we got. <laughs> Thank you. 
Barracuda, the opening track on Hart's 1977 album, Little Queen, their third studio album. The album will go to number nine. The single will go to number 11. According to Nancy Wilson, the guitar riff for Barracuda was inspired by the riff from Nazareth's cover of the Joni Mitchell song, This Flight Tonight, angering Nazareth, with whom they were touring. The lyrics focus on Ann Wilson's rage towards a male radio promoter who came up to her after a concert asking how her lover was. She initially thought he was talking about her boyfriend and band manager Michael Fisher. After he revealed he was talking about her sister Nancy, Ann became outraged, went back to her hotel room, and wrote the original lyrics of the song. The whole incest angle came from their record company, Mushroom Records. Up Around the Bend, seventh track on Cosmos Factory, CCR's fifth studio album from 1970. The album will go to number one, and the single goes to number four. The song opens with a prominent high-pitched guitar riff played by John Fogarty. The lyrics have Fogarty telling of a gathering up around the bend on the highway and inviting the listener to join in. The lyrics contrast with the more pessimistic flipside single, Run Through the Jungle. The band had to explain to journalists in the UK that Around the Bend wasn't a reference to mental issues as it was in England. Fogarty was inspired to write the song while riding his motorcycle through the hills near his California home. Over the Hills and Far Away, the fifth track, I'm sorry, third track on Led Zeppelin's fifth studio album, Houses of the Holy, 1973. The album will go to number one, the single to number 51. Initially, it was titled Many, Many Times. Jimmy Page plays a six-string acoustic guitar introduction and repeats the theme with a 12-string acoustic guitar in unison. This leads into section, a section led by electric guitar with the whole of the band. Following the final verse, the rhythm section fades out, gradually replaced by the echo, um, <clears throat> returns from Page's electric guitar, and, and a few chords played by Jones on clavinet. Derived from a Jimmy Page composition from 1967 when he was still with the Yardbirds called White Summer. The title change was likely inspired by the Tolkien poem Over the Old Hills and Far Away.
Bullets, the opening track on Creed's third studio album, Weathered, 2001. Album will go to number one. The single will go to number 11 on the mainstream rock chart. Bullets is an anthemic and forceful heavy metal track that features some of Mark Tremonti's fastest and most aggressive guitar work for Creed. Stapp described the song as the heaviest, most intense music we've ever written. The lyrics were written by Stapp about what he felt were unjust criticisms that the band had received throughout their careers from critics and the press. In the song, Stapp asked them to at least look at me when you shoot a bullet through my head, inferring that if someone has something negative to say about them, do it to their faces. Everything by Collective Soul. The final track on their third album, Discipline Breakdown, 1997. It's an up-tempo, post-grunge rock song. The lyrics are introspective, contemplating how fame has changed the writer, causing him to wear different faces. There's a biblical reference in the line, everything's admissible. All right, that'll do it for the song notes. Let me make sure that doesn't come back to haunt me. All right, let, um, there's a couple of covers. I think um, Hanoi Rocks uh, and Elton John both did pretty decent uh, covers of Up Around the Bend. I think I was, gosh, it's been weeks ago since I'd, um, I, th- I think I was pleasantly surprised by the Hanoi Rocks. Um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with them, they're a, uh, kind of a glam metal band from the late 70s, early 80s. And I think the thing that made them the most famous was uh, their drummer was killed in a drunk driving uh, incident uh, where Motley Crue lead singer Vince Neil was at the at the wheel of the car. And uh, and they ended up, uh, he ended up, kill, they ended up killing the drummer. I think his name was Razzle. And I think a couple, uh, a car that they hit, some somebody died too. And Vince Neil ended up, you know, having to do some community service. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, um, normal people would have probably gone to jail kind of thing. So anyway, um, yeah, look that up. Uh, Hanoi Rocks cover of uh up around the bend i think it'll pleasantly surprise you all right let's get to the verdict oh i gotta do my i forgot i have my there's the verdict okay still sounds weird uh my number my 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 top song that gets five points is gonna be up around the bend creed's clear rider revival my number 11 all-time ccr song and that's something that's a new feature on here by the way i'm gonna give you my ranking of the song in in the catalog of the band because I did I went through there and 
I went through my all my uh, Excel spreadsheets and I ranked all of the songs uh, based on which band it is. That was a hundred and something bands, so it, it took me a little while. Um, so uh, yeah, that's my number eleven all all time CCR song, which you know which means the the top ten must be really good, right? Uh, this song combines punk energy with precise musicianship. The drums and bass keep driving while the guitars take turns driving and exploring. The opening riff is one of the more memorable of all time. The lyrics are fun and optimistic, and there's no better way to start a party than with Up Around the Bend. Um, Barracuda my num- my, my, gets my four points. It's my number two song on here, but it gets four points. That's how we do it here. We rank them. We give them five through one points. Okay. Um, my number one heart of all t- heart song of all time. It's definitely the first song I can remember being discussed in the context of music genres. Uh, I would have probably been about seven years old when the song came out, and um, I didn't know one genre from another. I remember my uncle Daryl, who's only I don't know four or five years older than me, um, was playing the song. And I don't know if someone was asking about what kind of music it was, but I do remember him saying that it was rock. So for me, Barracuda means rock when I hear that word. You know, when I hear someone refer to music as rock, Barracuda immediately pops up. Great song. Um, my getting three points over the hills and far away, Led Zeppelin. Um, not as overplayed as Stairway or maybe Ramble On, but it fits in with those songs as an acoustic hard rock contrast song. The fast-paced strumming on the rhythm guitars uh, give the song a texture the rest of the song can build on. Not my favorite page solo all the way through, but parts of it are iconic. It's my number 17 greatest Led Zeppelin song. Um... Coming in second to last with two points is going to be Everything, Collective Soul. It's my number 19 Collective Soul song. Um, and that's saying something. As I've said before, Collective Soul is one of those bands that I that don't really have any songs I dislike. Uh, songs like this one, bright, upbeat, refusing to slide down into angst. Uh, rarely, if I ever, skip it when it comes on. Uh, so that means Bullets by Creed is going to get one point. It's my last song on the list. Um, it's my number eight best Creed song. It's one of their heaviest and about as heavy as you can get without going into the, some of the more extreme heavy metal genres. It would rank higher on another list, I think. Okay. All right. So that does it for uh, the music part. Um, coming up next, we have our... Uh, short story, uh, the franchise part two, um, and this this is probably going to be the middle section of a trilogy in the, in this particular story. Um, I'm working on the the third part, and it's probably going to be yeah. It, it, and then these characters are gonna you know they're going to be recurring throughout the the stories you know so every everything is is connected at this point, and I've already. Uh, you know, resign myself to the fact that, that these stories are all part of the same universe. And, and, um, some of them could probably stand alone, but they, they do all kind of go together and we are going somewhere with it. Okay. So, uh, and then after the story is over and of course the story is read by, by the inimitable, um, 
Jeff Musgrave. And speaking of inimitable, the uh, intro that the little joke about music on your phone that was uh, uh, the inestimable inestimable is that a word inestimable uh, Gary Goldman. He's a uh, one of those comics that kind of kind of flies under the radar. You know, he's he's always funny when you see him. Um, pretty clean, you know. Um, you know, not not hitting home runs or anything, but he's a solid, you know, utility comic. And uh, so, um, you know, if you ever need your funny bone uh, tickled, then, you know, jump on YouTube and check out some Gary Goldman. But our, our playout song after the short story is going to be Violet Burning, uh, uh, the band Violet Burning, a uh, song called Gorgeous. Okay, there's a, a band from, a uh, Christian band from the 90s. Um, that uh, a lot of people kind of have forgotten about. And I wanted to throw it back in there, and uh, and so check that out. All right, guys, here comes my man Jeff with our short story, and then the violet burning. Uh, other than that, my mind is clean. Y'all have a good one. The franchise part two by Chris Naren. Paul the Barracuda Cohen took his first call of the day from Kirby in Athens, Georgia. Most football fans in the Southeast wondered what they did to deserve four hours a day of the Barracuda, but there was no denying that the conversations on his program drove the narrative for the sport of college football. I ain't saying I know Jack Neshoba's taking steroids. I'm saying I know nobody recovers from injury like he does unless they're on the gear. Kirby's accent seemed a bit overperformed, but it was typical for a caller to the Barracuda show that's why they was invented in the first place. He needs to be tested. According to the Southeastern Conference, he was tested as all athletes are, Cohen countered. Well, they need to test him again, Kirby whined. Make sure he ain't using somebody else's piss. The Barracuda had been gently encouraging his listeners to keep the steroid question in the forefront for weeks, and less subtle sports journalists magnified it on their own shows. Jimmy Troy, a radio host famous for being punched by several athletes for his abrasive style, declared on his show that Jack Neshoba was guilty of juicing until proven innocent. The Las Vegas Conquest, at owner Braxton Green's direction, had built a narrative around Jack's training. They created a web series just about Jack's workouts and diet. Ten episodes during training camp showed Jack doing impressive exercises like horizontal one-legged hops over a bench with a 185-pound barbell on his back. As ridiculous as functional strength training had gotten, no one else was doing anything that stupid. But for most of the fans, sports writers, and opposing teams, his ability to do something like that left them thinking if he could do that, it was probably what prevented his injuries, and it garnered him enough support to prevent a firestorm. In his first game as a professional, Jack broke records for rushing yards, passing yards, and touchdowns in both categories. Not just for a rookie or for a QB, but all-time single-game records. The Las Vegas Conquest looked like it had its franchise quarterback and a winning season in sight for the first time in almost a decade. Dr. Joseph K. Fish was a licensed physician with all the credentials of a legitimate physician. He had been to medical school and done his residency. He first learned medicine, however, when he was stolen as a six-month-old baby. His people called him Bopoli, the little people of the forest. 
and they mostly threw pine cones and sticks at trees. But every now and then, they would take an infant from its parents and spend several days teaching it the ancient knowledge of the woods. It was a terrifying few days for the parents, but one day, the baby would just be there unharmed. And as it grew up, the child would display unusual skill and knowledge about herbal medicines and cures. At the moment, Dr. Cavefish wasn't looking for a cure. He was looking for a way to injure Jack Neshoba. It was rare for a medicine man to meet with the Bopoli that had taught them as a child. It required knowledge of the little person's name. All he needed to do was speak it. For most, it would be impossible to guess. Before he left Las Vegas for the woods along the Bogachita River in South Central Mississippi, Braxton Green had provided him a list of names derived from a model of the Choctaw language. It was a long list, hundreds of names, and the doctor had been striding through the dark, humid forest for hours when he spoke the name Koei and was struck painfully on the ear by a pine cone. The little man laughed, the kind of silent, breathless laugh of someone who had just seen the funniest thing in his life. After recovering himself, the doctor explained the situation to Kaui and asked if there was some way to injure an Ishtahulo, or superior man. Kaui said he didn't know and wouldn't tell anyone if he did. A pine cone upside the head was funny, and he started laughing all over again. But a real injury went against the nature of the Bopoli, However, if the doctor would go to the big red tree in the center of the forest, he would find someone willing to do as he asked. But he warned the doctor not to trust anyone he met there. The doctor found the tree deep in the woods. It was, according to lore, the spot where the Nanichaha had been, where the Choctaw people had emerged from the center of the earth at the beginning of time. An evil spirit dwelled there called the Hoklanote, a being that could appear in any form it wished and read people's minds. The spirit explained that it couldn't leave the area around the Nane Chaha because the great spirit had cursed its kind. A human had to ask it to come. The doctor said he would ask it to come if it would do what he needed it to do. The Hoklanote said it would kill Jack Neshoba if that's what the doctor wanted. The doctor said he only wanted to know how to injure him. Jack Neshoba wasn't just physically different. He was one of those rare celebrity athletes that didn't go on dates in high school and college. There had been a few other religious types like him. Tim Tebow, down in Florida, was probably the most well-known example. Poor Manti Teo, up at Notre Dame, had been catfished into thinking he had an online girlfriend. Jack did have Diane, a friend from church who came from a similar background. Her parents were even more strict than Jack's. So strict, she was forbidden from courting Jack because he played football and went to a public school. Jack still hoped that his success in the league would change her parents' minds. The Hoklanote read Ned Hunter's thoughts about Diane when Dr. Cavefish entered the chief of security's office. Hunter had known about Diane since the day the general manager started populating his draft board. It whispered the name to the doctor, who asked Hunter who she was. A girlfriend. That's interesting. Hunter was cautious, but he pulled the file on Diane anyway. How do you plan to use her? The spirit saw the pictures in the file and manifested itself as Diane's father right in front of both men. Dear God, man, what is that? A not easily frightened Ned Hunter choked. 
That's our solution, the doctor smiled. Jack was on top of the world when Diane's father showed up at his apartment. He was having a record-breaking season, and the steroid talk had died down after the league's testing department confirmed he was clean. The Hoklanote told Jack that he was impressed by the fine young man Jack had become, and he had his blessing to court Diane. All I need from you is the truth, Jack. What's your secret? The Hoklanote didn't need him to say it out loud. Jack just needed to think it. Jack thought about what his parents had told him after their visit to Dr. Cavefish on the res. They both had visions when they found out his mom was pregnant. Visions of a champion no one could overcome unless his skull was pierced. They told Jack of the visions, no one else. Their Baptist faith didn't offer any answers except the faith itself. Dr. Cavefish had tried to convince them that their son was destined to be a great ruler. They decided they would wait and see what God had planned. Jack didn't quite understand what the doctor wanted from him. You don't have to tell me now, son, the Hoklanote grinned, but you will if you want to marry my daughter. The team's PR firm were thrilled when they heard about Diane and organized a small event where Jack and Diane would finally begin their courtship. It was going to be cute and heartwarming. All the elements the game itself couldn't offer a certain segment of the viewing public so coveted by the league. As Diane made her way through the little outdoor cafe towards a beaming Jack Neshoba, discreetly positioned cameras caught every angle. The stream was going out to every media outlet in the sports universe. It was as close to a royal wedding as Americans can get. And then, Diane pulled a gun out of her purse and shot Jack in the head at Point Blake Range. Diane was arrested on the spot, but disappeared before the squad car could reach the station. The Hoklanote was immediately transported back to the Nanechaha, where it was able to sustain physical manifestation again. Taking a life had empowered it, and it was pleased. Ned Hunter witnessed the autopsy and confirmed Jack's death to Braxton Green. Both men blamed Dr. Cavefish for everything, but the doctor had also disappeared. Leaving Jack's funeral, Braxton Green took a long drive into the Mojave Desert until he came to a dirt road. He followed it to a canyon and down into a massive cave. Inside the cave was a complex of laboratories, workshops, and vehicles. He got out of his truck and entered a medical tent full of staff and Jack Neshoba laying on a gurney hooked up to several machines. Let me know when he wakes up. I could